That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hello, hello, hello again, everyone. Welcome to this episode of This Show is All About You. Thank you so much for taking the next hour of your time to spend it with me as we hear, listen, engage in stories and uh, the larger world in ways that maybe that we don't normally do, or at least kind of getting under the standard narratives. That's what I like to do in all the various parts of my life, which is a very vibrant one, which I'm very excited, excited about. And uh, so looking forward to today's episode, I've got a story for you that I think fits with uh, the week, as I will say, and I'm, I'm excited to be back after uh, playing a replay last week from Memorial Day. I hope you all had a wonderful three-day weekend. If you'd like to know more about me, if this is your introduction to the show, please check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. There you'll find uh, episodes of the show. You'll also find a lot of original writings, uh, the, the uh, foreword for my uh, alternate history fiction novel that I've been pitching to publishers and a lot more. You can check that out there. You can also connect with me directly on social media via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you will find me rather easily. Would love to connect with you. Special thank you at the top of the show, as always, to this show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds. They do this, though, not only by introducing students to all these career options, but by helping kids better connect with themselves, their values, what they're looking to do, and in a very holistic way, help them develop self-advocacy and find better ways to connect within their families and their larger communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check out their website at airsci, A-I-R-S-C-I, dot org. Okay, so like every other episode, we uh, break every episode into three segments. Got this lead in, and then I tell a story in the middle. I think today's story, I think you're all going to enjoy. And then I kind of give a follow-up time allowing on what's going on with me. So let's just kick it off right away by taking a look at the past week's news in the segment that I call, What in the World is Going On? Now to the war in Ukraine. Ukraine now taking the fight to Russia on multiple fronts. Ukrainian missiles striking deep inside Russian-occupied territory in the south. Also stepping up artillery attacks across its northern border into Russia. Local officials in the Belgorod region say 2,500 Russian civilians have now been evacuated to temporary shelters. Western officials believe Ukraine is trying to optimize conditions for a future offensive against Russia. This, of course, has all the hallmarks of this coming counteroffensive that it is on its way. In standard military doctrine, uh, before these types of things happen, doing probing attacks behind, right behind an enemy's front line is pretty standard operating procedure. Sending probing attacks out to find out where the enemy has uh, concentrated its forces is pretty standard. What isn't standard, though, of course, in this from the point of view of the Russians, is that they're being attacked on their own territory. 
This was not anticipated, obviously. As we've heard many, many times, Vladimir Putin expected this war to last days, not into well into a second year. And this coming counteroffensive, which uh, the Ukrainians have been talking about for quite some time, promises to be a big moment in the course of this war. And that doesn't really matter how it turns out. One way or the other, it's going to be a very big deal. The Ukrainian government has been pushing out a lot of information out to its public, encouraging everyone to stay quiet about what is coming. And while it is strange that uh, they are making a, a big deal about how this counteroffensive is coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, which you don't normally do, there, is, there must be reasons for it. And chances are part of that is to terrify the Russian soldiers who are on the other side of this line. Remember, a lot of these Russian soldiers are forced conscripts from the big, uh, what Putin called the partial mobilization, back almost a year ago now. So the idea that this is coming is meant to leverage that anxiety on part of the Russians, in part. Uh, there's probably another number of other factors as well. But we all stand with bated breath, really, waiting for this uh, offensive to start. No one really knows if it's going to look like a big mass wave, which I think was what most people anticipate, or if it will start like the ones that did uh, back in the fall with some subtle moves in various directions that build momentum. That's how the cities of Kherson and Kharkiv were liberated, for example. So more to come there as we all seem to keep waiting. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, a very dangerous incident happened, which underscores the uh, tension, I shall say, between a lot of the great powers in the world right now. From the U.S. perspective, it was a U.S. Navy ship, a destroyer, the USS Chenghu, sailing with a Canadian ship through the Taiwan Strait, which under international law is international uh, is an international waterway. Sailing through that when, according to U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, a Chinese Navy vessel or a Chinese military vessel cut 150 yards in front of the U.S. ship and then circled back and cut 2,000 yards in front of that ship again. From the U.S. perspective, it is China here that is to blame for what they called an unsafe maneuver. This was something that happened just a few days ago in one of the most dangerous and most contested waterways in the world, the Taiwan Straits, which is the strait of water between the island nation of Taiwan and mainland China. Of course, China claims Taiwan as its own territory, always has since the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, when nationalist forces moved everything over to China. The People's Republic of China, Communist China, has always claimed Taiwan as its own. And in the last, or the, ever since then, there's been tension between the two nations in that part of the world. But it's particularly become pronounced over the last 10 years as Xi Jinping, the Chinese premier, has expanded the military and given it a lot more of a robust uh, position in Asia. And certainly seeking that uh, to replace the United States as the preeminent power in the Western Pacific. The, ch the danger of these things, of course, is that while they happen quite a bit, usually with airplanes, right? the Chinese, in fact, just last week, buzzed an American surveillance plane coming within about 400 feet of it with a jet. And that's, that's, dangerous thing. that's a dangerous thing to do. But it doesn't very often happen with ships. And it's even less often that this is caught on video. And you can look up the video and see it. And it is very clear that uh, the Chinese vessel was sailing, sailing full steam ahead, trying to cut off uh, the USS Chenghu. And... 150 yards is not a lot of space. And then for them to come around and do it again underscores the degree to which the Chinese military is becoming more and more aggressive and bolder in that part of the world. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the United States is 
clearly supporting Taiwan's uh, efforts to stay independent. Taiwan has perhaps the most advanced um, aerial defense system in the world, and it's largely American-made, and American-made with uh, help of its allies, uh, Germany, uh, England, Japan, and others. And so that tension at a time of great tension elsewhere in the world is something to keep a very close eye on because all it takes is, A, one person doing something stupid on either side, and then, B, somebody on the other side responding equally stupid for a major international incident to occur. You never want those because in the moment and even after the moment, they can spiral into something that nobody wants. So tense time out there uh, as the majority of the world enters summer. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, that's, those are the big things that, to me that seem to be going on in the world. Let's talk about, or I'll give you the lead in to today's story. And I'm going to lead it off this way. You know, one of the fun things about life is when those little unexpected things happen. And they don't have to be big major moments or anything like that. It can just be sort of fun one-off occurrences. Uh, for example, getting free tickets to go somewhere that you, that you didn't anticipate, somewhere you like to go. I love when stuff like that happens. Or when a friend calls and says, hey, I'm going to be in town. Do you, have, do you have some time to get together? Or even something like finding $20 in a pair of jeans that <laughs> you hadn't worn in a while and you find that. It's like, those are always kind of a nice thing. One of the nice things, too, is when you go into someplace, uh, a restaurant or something like that, and you, get, and you get something for free. Something is given to you. And if that's ever happened to you, I'm sure you can think of a few times that's happened, maybe a free dessert, uh, a free entree, more often than not, a free drink, right? Sometimes that's maybe a little more common. So that one's always nice. Someone gives you a free drink if you're a drinker. Imagine, though, if you got eight free drinks <laughs> when you walked into a place. Well, this happened to a young man, 21-year-old young man named Norwood Thomas. And Norwood Thomas, and I'll explain all of this in just a little bit. Norwood Thomas was traveling. He was from Durham, North Carolina, and really was interested in repairing cars. And that's what he did for the most part. And he was traveling in France and in a small town called Pourpavel, walked into a pub there and proceeded to receive eight free shots of brandy. Now, you might be wondering, what is so great about Norwood Thomas that a French pub proprietor gave him eight free shots of brandy? Well, these shots of brandy were prefaced by a simple question. When Norwood entered this place, walked in, he had a buddy with him, and French bartender came out and asked him if there were Americans in Purpleville, small town. And were, was it full of Americans? And Norwood Thomas said, we, oui, which was all the French he knew by his own admission. This French proprietor was so happy he gave him the shot. And then he proceeded to name a number of other towns in the area. Were they full of Americans? The pub proprietor asked, we, oui. Norwood Thomas said eight times, each time followed by a free shot of brandy. Now, you might be wondering, when did this happen? <laughs> well, 
79 years ago tomorrow, as of this recording, did this happen. Because Norwood Thomas was a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division of the United States Army. And earlier that morning, before he had walked into that pub in the Normandy section area of France, uh, Norwood Thomas had been a part of the airborne assault of the D-Day invasion of Normandy, which, of course, one of the biggest events of the Second World War, one of the biggest events of the 20th century, and, in its own way, the subject of my alternate history fiction novel. It's something that is very close to my heart. It's an era, it's a, an event that I've studied closely. Uh, that is a place that I've been to a number of different times. Norwood Thomas was there, and he was part of this group of paratroopers that, if you know anything about that story, that part of the invasion did not go as planned. They'd flown over in the middle of the night from England in C-47 transport aircraft and had bailed out at around anywhere from 400 to 750 feet above the ground, all under fire, middle of the night, cloudy night. And a lot of these men had been scattered. They were supposed to be, they were jumping out in their own units, but in the chaos of what was happening around them, they all got separated. And their job was to seize a bunch of small towns not far from the beachheads, from the Normandy coastline, where all those uh, invasion forces were going to be landing troops once the sun came up. Their job was to grab those small little towns that all had roads in them that German tanks could use and soldiers could use, seize those towns and prevent the Germans from reinforcing the beaches. So Thomas was among tens of thousands of paratroopers. The United States had the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne parachuting on, into the western side of the Normandy Peninsula or behind beaches that have been codenamed Utah and Omaha. And the British and Canadians had been dropping paratroopers along the remaining ones from west to east of Sword, Juno, uh, oh, I forgot the last one. Oh, Gold, excuse me. Gold, Sword, and Juno in that order west to east. So Norwood Thomas was one of those guys who got separated from his main unit. And he was a radioman, and he had been trained as a radioman. And so his job was to get on the ground, effectively communicate out to all the other troops and bring everybody together. And then they were going to move on to their objectives. Well, he lost his radio in the jump because of that cha the chaos of the battle. So he didn't have that. And he had his rifle. He had a few clips of ammunition and some of his supplies, but not all of them. And so, as happened all throughout the Normandy countryside for the next handful of hours in the middle of the night, Norwood and the other soldiers that he came across, whether they were in the 101st or in the 82nd Airborne, all kind of moved in the general direction of what they knew their objectives were supposed to be. Every single one of these paratroopers had studied the battle plan that had been given to them, knew the objectives, and in a lot of cases, had studied the terrain even from photographs and topographical models of everything, including cusps of trees, farmhouses, towns, roads, railroad lines, small creeks, not just rivers. They'd studied all of this with the idea that once they were on the ground, they would be able to visually find their way around enough until their objectives could be recognized and seized upon and attacked. But this is not how it had gone. And so Norwood had done the best he could and had, met, had linked up 
with another regiment whose job was to, something really important, was to seize an objective between Utah and Omaha Beach that would allow all the troops landing on both beaches to move inland. It was a causeway, kind of a, kind of a, a river causeway between the two beaches. It was full of Germans. The Germans were going to be on either side, and soldiers, even if they got onto the beach, wouldn't be able to get inland unless that causeway had been cleared by these paratroopers. The units that were supposed to be doing that job had not arrived on time. It had not been under attack by the time Norwood and the groups that he had connected with had come across it. And so they put together an attack to essentially liberate that causeway. So that was the beginning of the day for Norwood Thomas. When we come back from our first break on this show is all about you. We'll pause right there and I'll tell you a little bit more about Norwood's life and his background and some of the things about him and carry that out. So if you want to hear more about this interesting guy who was one man among thousands doing something remarkable with a very normal life, come on back on this show is all about you. See you in a minute. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you, telling you the story of one man in the Great Crusade, a young man named Norwood Thomas, uh, who in 1944 was 21 and a half years old. He was from Durham, North Carolina, and he was a part of the 101st Airborne that uh, parachuted into Normandy in advance of the invasion of Normandy by the remainder of the Allied military, which, if successful, would effectively signal the beginning of the end of the Nazi occupation of Europe and eventually of Nazi Germany itself. And of course, as we know from history, that is how it turned out. Norwood Thomas was among these paratroopers who went through hell in that those first that first 24 hours or so because nothing seemed to go right. And by the time Norwood Thomas had found enough people from various units to put together sort of an ad hoc group to seize this important causeway that divided Utah from Omaha Beach, clear it of German defenders to allow the soldiers arriving on the beach to move inland. By the time that had happened, uh, Norwood Thomas was exhausted. To give it some perspective, Norwood Thomas, along with the rest of the 101st Airborne and the rest of the 82nd Airborne, who had trained in North Carolina and in Georgia for two years. By the time this had happened, two years of training had come to the forefront. Two years of planning had come to the forefront. Norwood Thomas had enlisted 
in the military in March of 1942, not long after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And as he recalled it later, it was something that absolutely infuriated him, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And as the stories grew about what the Germans were doing in Europe, uh, Norwood Thomas wanted to be a part of doing something about it. And in that sense, he was no different than millions of young men who enlisted or tried to enlist in the U.S. military to fight in the war after Pearl Harbor. So he enlisted in March of 1942 in the Army. And he was uh, training uh, in Fort Bragg when he was approached by members of the 101st Airborne looking for volunteers to be paratroopers. Now, many of them, uh, meant this had not really been done before. This was a new combat tactic uh, in, in military history because airplanes that could carry a lot of people over long distances were also relatively new. They'd only been around for a couple of decades up until this point. So when volunteers were being looked for to join paratroopers, you can imagine uh, the bemusement or the outright, <laughs> the outright shocked reaction a number of these men would have at the idea of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane uh, in a parachute only several hundred feet off the ground while being shot at. And then when landing on the ground, only having what they had on them, right? Rifles, uh, knives, whatever they had to defend themselves. They weren't parachuting out with tanks, for example. And there weren't necessarily aircraft to help them on the ground. They had to go seize the objectives themselves. A lot of men did not volunteer to be paratroop, paratroopers. A number of them did, though. And some, like Norwood Thomas, said, you know, you got paid an extra 150 bucks right, to, do, to do that job. And so for some of them, that seemed like the best way to go. And Norwood Thomas, as I mentioned before the break, when he became part of the 101st Airborne and got his jump wings after all the training that it took, became a division radioman. And so his job was effectively communications. So he was a part of this entire group that trained, uh, trained both in North Carolina and then and in Georgia, and then eventually went across the ocean on a slow-moving troop ship. Usually these trips took 40 to 45 days, sometimes longer to move from North America to land in England. They trained in England for quite some time. And then, of course, on June 6th, 1944, finally enacted the operation they'd been training for for two years and landed in Normandy. So with all that in mind, this is where Norwood Thomas found himself as dawn was breaking on June 6th. And every single paratrooper knew that when the sun came up, Troops by the thousands were going to be landing on the beaches just a few miles ahead of them to the north. And these towns that were so vital to the defense of those beaches for the Germans had to be seized to prevent the Germans from sending in reinforcements. The Germans did not know where the invasion was actually going to come. The Allies had spent a lot of time trying to convince the Germans that the invasion was going to happen further north at the shortest point between England and mainland France near Calais. Instead, they were going further across the English Channel to Normandy, which was actually a better landing zone, broader, um, less sloped, uh, less defended. That was the idea. And so the idea was to keep the Germans from guessing. Well, pretty soon, the Germans were going to be able to see for themselves where the invasion was coming. And then if they could move tanks, um, heavy armor, heavy guns towards the beaches, they could just blow up all those uh, troop landing ships as they were landing on shore. So. What Norwood Thomas and these other paratroopers were assigned to do was incredibly important. And yet, they would be the ones 
defending themselves, seizing these towns and defending these towns from those same tanks and big heavy guns that were trying to get through to the beaches. So it was a it was a very dangerous job. Now, a lot of people have heard of the 101st Airborne. It's part of our larger popular consciousness, more so than perhaps uh, some other divisions in the Second World War, mainly because of the book called Band of Brothers by the late historian Stephen Ambrose, which became a major HBO miniseries a number of years ago, almost 20 years ago now, uh, called Band of Brothers. A, I think it was 10 episodes, a 10-episode uh, following of one company in the 101st Airborne, Easy Company, through their whole experience in Europe, from D-Day all the way to the end of the Second World War when they were all uh, partying in Hitler's mountain retreat in Berchtesgaden, Bavaria. Norwood Thomas would end up traveling all along this route with that same company. Now, he wasn't in Easy Company, but he was part of this larger division that was moving in the in these same directions. So if you've seen Band of Brothers or you've read the book, you know that the 101st Airborne Division not only fought on D-Day, and they were supposed to be there for three days, they ended up fighting in Normandy for six weeks. They went back to England for quite some time for retraining and for rest and recuperation. Then they fought in September of 1944 in Operation Market Garden, which was another parachute drop, this time into Holland, where the attempt was to hold this area, this corridor in Holland, uh, against German armor and allow British armor to move up into Holland, seize the country, pivot to the east, and move right into Germany. The idea was to shorten the war in a short period of time. That operation did not work for a lot of different reasons. And so after Market Garden in the fall of 1944, the 101st Airborne, including Norwood Thomas, really positioned themselves again in France as well as in Belgium. And it was in December of 1944 when Hitler launched his massive counteroffensive that's come to be known to history as the Battle of the Bulge. And the 101st Airborne ended up being surrounded in the town of Bastogne, which was a major hub point for a lot of different roads coming in and the importance of the 101st holding that town to prevent the Germans from getting it and then being able to send their tanks in multiple directions against the Allies was absolutely vital to how this battle was going to turn out. Norwood Thomas was there for every single one of them. But of course, when he was standing at Causeway 1 between Utah and Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944 in the morning, all of that was still well in the future. Norwood Thomas, along with every single one of those guys, those paratroopers trying to find their way in the dark, had two things in mind. Their objective, achieving their objective, let's say three things. Achieving their objective, finding the guys that were in their unit to help achieve that objective, and staying alive in some sort of order. And, and if you talk to people who were there, who fought in that, Norwood Thomas included, they'd tell you it was some combination of those three. So as dawn was breaking and the troops and the landing ships out in the English Channel began to land at Utah Beach and at Omaha Beach and all along the Normandy coastline, Norwood Thomas and this ad hoc group of guys from a number of different units and a number of different companies in the 101st and 82nd, knowing that causeway had to be cleared and seized and opened up, became part of the operation to clear that causeway. Now, you might be wondering, what does a radio man have to do in all this, particularly when he doesn't have a radio? Well, he was a soldier first, and so he knew how to shoot his weapon. He knew all these tactics. He'd been trained in all of them, and so he became a part of this. And Norwood 
became a part of several guys who were essentially firing cover for a number of other soldiers who were going up against the German units along the causeway. And Norwood Thomas recalled shooting at a number of Germans, hitting a number of Germans, usually from less than 100 yards away as they worked to clear this causeway. By the time the invasion uh, was landing on the beaches and had been going for about an hour or so, the causeway had effectively been cleared. And so all it took, all they were waiting for were those soldiers on the beach to break through uh, and spill into the causeway to move inland. That's all they were waiting for. You probably know from, again, another popular culture knowledge, the movie Saving Private Ryan, starring Tom Hanks, that the American experience at Normandy between the two beaches, Utah and Omaha, could not have been more different. A couple hundred men were killed and wounded at Utah Beach landing there, which was on the far western end of the Normandy line. Omaha Beach, which was right next to it, was the bloodiest battle of that day. Uh, a number, thousands, of American soldiers were killed or wounded um, trying to get onto the bluffs above Omaha Beach. And it was a very, very ugly scene for quite some time. So the fact that this causeway was open was important, but it was going to take those troops on Omaha Beach breaking through and all these paratroopers, wherever they were, doing their jobs to the best of their ability at these small towns all behind the line if this invasion was going to be successful. Well, eventually, we all know, forces at Omaha Beach broke through and slowly the process began of the soldiers moving inland, in part coming up causeway number one. That's what it had been identified as. So coming up causeway number one. And so as that happened, Norwood continued to move with these same paratroopers in effect, trying to find their units. And it was in that process that he ran into a buddy of his from, that he was trained with, the first one that he could find. And they moved into, they were started going to these villages, these small little villages throughout the Normandy countryside. And that's where he went into Purperville. And he and his buddy walked into the pub. And this is what they were able to share with this pub proprietor. That every town he had mentioned to them that had been liberated, they said, we... They got a free shot of brandy. This might have kept on going for quite some time. Remember, this is late morning by this point. So the invasion is still going on uh, and is still in full swing and still not guaranteed to be successful. And Norwood Thomas and his buddy are in the process of getting drunk in a, in a country, French country pub um, on one of the most you know, anticipated days of the entire war. Eventually... Their lieutenant came in, the lieutenant who was in command, came in, found him, and said, get your you-know-whats out of here and back out fighting. Problem was, they were both a little tipsy by then. And so Norwood, uh, continuing, to move, <laughs> continuing to move forward, uh, began the process eventually of looking for his radio, uh, which he could, use, he could use a homing device to find. But with the objective secured, he was then able to start paying attention to all these other things. How do we... How do I find my equipment? How do I find my, my unit? All those things. Along the way, with his knowledge of radio communications, Norwood would see all these different telephone poles with insulation on all the telephone wiring and all the telephone boxes. And knowing a lot about radio communications, he knew that if they were to shoot out these boxes, they would be effectively cutting German communications or at least making them more difficult. So enlisting the help of the guys that were with them, as they were moving to find their units, 
nor would these others would use their rifles and shoot out these telephone boxes and blow these things up, essentially effectively downing these power lines or making them inoperable. Uh, pretty pretty uh, astute thing to do in his situation. Eventually, by the end of the day, Norwood had found the majority of his own company and all the troops that had come in from the beaches all began to move inland with their own armor, their own trucks, their own heavy guns, supported by airplanes overhead. And by the end of that day, it was clear that the Germans were not going to be pushing the invasion off the beach. What no one knew, of course, was that another six weeks of hard fighting would ensue in Normandy. Because if you've ever been there, if you've seen pictures of it or from the movies you've watched, it's all countryside broken up by hedgerows, giant hedgerows that can be, you know, 15 feet high, uh, big berms, uh, creek beds, uh, stone walls, you name it, with open fields. And so getting through those barriers could be very difficult. And then when you did, you had to go across open ground to get to the next one, which, you know, made you wide open for being attacked by German defenders wherever they might be, if you could even see them. So it became a slog for the next six weeks for Norwood Thomas and for all the other members of the 101st Airborne, who, as I mentioned a little while ago, uh, had been told to anticipate fighting for three days before they would be relieved. They ended up having to fight for six weeks because the Germans put up a hell of a defense, uh, and it just turned out to be harder than anyone expected, as often happens in war, even when you have a decided advantage, like the Allies did that day, despite the fact that you, they achieved a clear victory on the Normandy beaches, which they did, it still took longer than anyone anticipated. And so Norwood Thomas, uh, with all of his training, with all of his skill, with some luck and some inventiveness, managed to survive D-Day. And that was the first accomplishment. He managed to survive it without ever getting wounded. In fact, he would only get slightly wounded once in the war, and that was many months later at Bastogne, when he was part of the 101st Airborne that had been besieged in the city. He was uh, wounded when a GP was riding in, uh, was hit by enemy fire, and he was wounded by shrapnel. And he said later in life that the only thing he remembered of that was not the incident itself, but opening his eyes and seeing a French nun in a hospital staring him right in the face. <laughs> and uh, it took him a little while to figure out what he was doing uh, and where he was in all of that. Now, after D-Day, uh, once they were moved off the line and they'd fought in uh, Normandy for quite some time, including uh, being part of the battle of, that sees the town of Carentan, which is legendary in World War II history now, after the division had seized that objective, which turned out to be really important, consolidating their position in Normandy, Norwood Thomas and his units in the 101st were ferried back uh, to England. And there, uh, he was able to reconnect uh, for a short period of time with a woman that he had met, a British woman, that he had met uh, whose name was Joyce, uh, Joyce Moore. And they had struck up a relationship. She was younger than him by about three or four years. And they had a romance going on, one of thousands that happened between U.S. military troops and local British women in the lead up uh, to the invasion. And when we come back from our second break, I will tell you about why that part of this story is so interesting, as well as a few other points uh, that, I think, <laughs> that I think will make clear why I'm telling this story today of all days. 
So come on back here in just a minute. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you, telling the story of Norwood Thomas, a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division on D-Day and campaigns afterwards, Operation Market Garden, the Battle of the Bulge, and many others. Just his one experience, and I know you're probably wondering why I've singled out Norwood Thomas uh, to tell his story among all the the many uh, stories from that day. We're getting there. But where I left off before the break, I was telling you about uh, Norwood Thomas and his uh, young romance that he had struck up with a British woman named Joyce Moore uh, while he was waiting to parachute into, uh, into France. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, they had had a romance, and of course, he went off to war, was back in England for a short period of time. But then when they went back in the fall, to Europe when they went back to for Operation Market Garden, the 101st Airborne did not go back to England. They were staying on continental soil from that point on, and with her on his mind, Norwood Thomas was going through every, all these things that I've described to you, particularly D-Day, but every step along the way: Market Garden in Holland, Bastogne in Belgium, the hell uh, the hellish experience that that was. That. Uh, no member of 101st Airborne ever believes that they needed to be rescued from. Uh, General George Patton's 3rd Army eventually relieved the siege at Bastogne. That's about as far as 101st uh, paratroopers like Norval Thomas will go, by saying that they were relieved but not rescued. Went through all of that and eventually followed the rest of his division across Europe. Uh, he was in, uh, they were in France for quite some period of time, moving eastward uh, through uh, the early part of 1945, during which Norwood was effectively in most headquarters locations, wherever they were moving to, organizing communications and making sure those were working smoothly. He was in Munich in April of 1945 when word reached the military that President Franklin Roosevelt had died. And when they moved, began to move into Germany not long after that, Norwood, among many members of the 101st, would witness firsthand uh, the Nazi concentration camps, which by that point had been filled up not just with German political prisoners, but with, uh, with Jewish prisoners and many others, the so-called undesirables that the Nazis had called them, that had been moved from the killing centers, the death camps like Auschwitz and others in eastern Poland. They'd been forcibly marched back into Germany as the Soviets had moved in from the east. Norwood didn't remember the exact camp that he came to. He always thought it was probably Dachau outside of Munich, which is entirely possible. But there were also satellite camps by the dozens that were connected to some of these larger camps like Dachau and others. So it could have been any of those. But like other soldiers, he was horrified by what he witnessed there. 
and the extent of Nazi brutality, while there had been talk about it, rumors about it, firsthand accounts about it in newspapers and the like, it was something else entirely to encounter it in person. So Norwood was a part of groups that, of soldiers that had experienced that directly. And when the war finally ended in May of 1945, Norwood was with his uh, comrades in the 101st in Bavaria, particularly at Berchtesgaden, which was a kind of a Nazi resort area in the Alps. And Hitler's uh, retreat, the so-called Eagle's Nest, which had been built by Nazi party funds, was up on top of this giant mountain looking out over the Alps on all of Bavaria. And the 101st Airborne had uh, beaten French military units to get there. And if you've seen Band of Brothers, you know what ensues, right? They, they raid the, the wine cellars. <laughs> you know, they, some soldiers uh, pillage a lot of stuff to take home as souvenirs. Norwood didn't take back any souvenirs from that. But he did go up into the Eagle's Nest and looked out over the Alps from Hitler's armchair. So this young man from Durham, North Carolina, who was interested in repairing cars more than anything else and was fighting a war so that he could go home because it needed to be done, uh, ended the war sitting in Hitler's armchair and looking out over the country that uh, had just surrendered to them. Eventually, not long after that, uh, in the second wave of troops that were sent home, Norwood Thomas was a part of that wave, and he got home just before Thanksgiving of 1945. Of course, by then, World War II in the Pacific had ended as well. And so when he got back to the United States just before Thanksgiving, he uh, landed in Massachusetts. He had a Thanksgiving dinner in Massachusetts. They then had to go down to Fort Bragg uh, to effectively be decommissioned. He had another Thanksgiving there, and then he had another Thanksgiving when he got home uh, in Durham. Now, you might be wondering, what about this young love that he had, Joyce, who was in England. Well, he wrote to Joyce upon getting home and uh, asked her if uh, she would be willing to continue their romance, come to the United States or uh, something like that. In one of the interesting stories of this, there are many, but one of the interesting and the interesting what ifs, uh, Joyce misunderstood his letter and thought he was effectively telling her that he was already married. And so she refused to continue this relationship with him. And so that romance ended. That was a very common story among many of those overseas romances, but some uh, ended up, you know, some of those couples ended up staying together. Uh, some pretty remarkable stories of that, as a matter of fact. But in the case of Norwood, that did not happen. And uh, not long after that, he met a woman named Moselle, who he eventually married. He had three kids with. Joyce, meanwhile, did the same thing where she was in England. She got married, had a few kids. Now, with all of that going on, the war moving into peacetime, Norwood worked on finding his way back into a quote-unquote normal life, and he found it quite difficult, as many veterans did. Now, all those reasons were for, could be very different from person to person. Certainly the trauma of what they had seen, what they had experienced, the fatigue, any injuries, any wounds were going to be living reminders of those things. But Norwood recalled his biggest problem was he had trouble relating to anyone, particularly other men, who had not fought in the war. 
And upon moving back into these various jobs he was in, he was with some guys who fought, but he was also among men who had not. And he simply could not abide them. He had an anger towards them that was uh, often very sharp, often very, um, by his own admission, often hard to explain. But it was something that was very difficult for him. And his, his wife helped him work through it to the best of her ability. But it meant that that volatility in his life, it made it difficult for him to find a job and a career to stick with. And so for almost 15 years after he got home, Norwood went from job to job uh, with his wife, eventually three kids, and they moved in a number of different places. In 1959, Norwood came to the conclusion that the only thing that really felt normal for him was the military. So he re-enlisted and he ended up serving all over the world. He served in Turkey and Korea in a number of different places for the remainder of his career. And he worked in communications. That's what he'd been trained in. And he ended up having a great career and all that. And of course, he raised his family. His kids ended up having kids. He became a grandfather. And about 70 years after he had fought in Normandy, by then, Norwood Thomas was a widower. And one day in Virginia Beach, where he had settled with his family, he received a message from the son of his old flame, Joyce. And by this point, Joyce was living in Adelaide, Australia. So literally the other side of the world. And Norwood Thomas became a bit of a uh, news and internet sensation for a period of time because uh, news uh, news organizations picked up on this story of him reconnecting with his long lost love after 70 years. And you can look it up. You can find it rather easily. Just look up Norwood Thomas and some of the first videos to pop up are of him uh, Skyping, <laughs> modern technology, Skyping with Joyce Miller from his house in Virginia Beach. And they were very delighted to see one another. Uh, one of the first things Norwood said to her was, hey, you broke my heart. <laughs> And yet, they clearly had both lived um, very long lives, had had families. Joyce ended up getting divorced. But nevertheless, they made a plan to meet. And through a, a GoFundMe a page that was set up uh, around this, Norwood was able to travel, 70 years later, travel to Adelaide, Australia, to meet Joyce. And, of course, it was filmed and it was all over the news, all over the world, as this lovely story of uh, two once deep, long-lost loves back together again. It was a very sweet story, actually. Now, at the, around the same time of all this, of course, by this point, by the time that had happened, Norwood and all others who had served on D-Day had become more and more uh, notable and noticed in, as all the big anniversaries of D-Day came along. Of course, the big one, 1994, of Tom Brokaw covered that for NBC News. It was not long after that that his book, the Greatest Generation became um, really the, the phrase used to talk about all those who had fought in World War II and all those who had lived through that time. From that point on, survivors of D-Day, the guys who had fought in D-Day, became more and more celebrities wherever they went. And stories like Norbert meeting up with Joyce again only added to that. For his part, Norwood stayed connected with a lot of these groups of survivors and uh, remain friends with them. And as these anniversaries came along and there were efforts to bring these guys back to Normandy, 
for these various tours to see where they had once fought. Norwood began to participate in these uh, with the help of his son, Steve, who would often go with him. And because he had been part of the 101st uh, Airborne and because of the popularity of uh, the book and series Band of Brothers, which was about one company in the 101st, Norwood Thomas became a sought-after person by groups that were looking to bring veterans back, take them to these locations, and then as part of travel packages that people then could sign up for uh, and tag along. So if you were a big fan, a big military buff, you could actually go to these locations with guys who fought there. One of the people who supported these efforts openly was the historian Stephen Ambrose, and uh, he pushed these really hard before his own death. And in 2019, it wasn't the first time he had returned to Normandy, but in 2019, Norwood Thomas uh, went back to Normandy for the 75th anniversary of the invasion and the beginning of the liberation. And he went on one of these Stephen Ambrose-sponsored tours. And they went to all the various locations, particularly Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, and all the towns behind those two beaches where Norwood and others had fought. And so they were there for the 75th anniversary, um, the commemorations at, uh, at the American Cemetery at Omaha Beach. And a couple days later, the tours were still going on. They were seeing some spots. And on June 8th of that year, 2019, Norwood Thomas was uh, at the Pegasus Bridge, which was a, on the eastern end, the exact opposite side of Normandy from Utah and Omaha Beach. It was actually where the British were landing. And the Pegasus Bridge was the first location that paratroopers on D-Day had seized, this key location over a river. And they had done it flawlessly. There had been absolutely no problems with that. And there's a, there's a museum there at the Pegasus Bridge with gliders and some other stories about what had happened there, a monument, those types of things. And one of the last stops they were making on this tour before they all headed back to the United States, uh, Norwood Thomas was a part of this. They were at the Pegasus Bridge Museum. And that same day, I was at the Pegasus Bridge <laughs> Museum helping run a virtual field trip uh, broadcast on Twitch and been going on for quite some time. I've talked about it on this show before. Uh, we ourselves had been going to uh, all the different places, uh, Omaha Beach, uh, Gold Beach, uh, Pegasus Bridge, as many places as we could think of to live stream on the Internet around the world all these different commemorative events that were going on. We'd been in Duxford, England, where they'd brought together a bunch of C-47s and DC-3s, the types of planes that Norwood had jumped out of. They'd brought them all together. And, uh, of course, we'd, we'd also caught a um, celebratory and commemorative parachute drop of a lot of uh, paratroopers into France, right in the very place where uh, soldiers had first landed on that day 75 years prior. We'd seen all of this. And... We had been at, this group of us, had been at Omaha Beach the day before and had thought, you know, that's about as big as this can get. So <laughs> we decided on our way back to Paris to go to the Pegasus Bridge and stop there. And it was there that we ran into Norwood Thomas. And we didn't know who he was, but uh, Julia Cannell, good friend of the show, over at Airway Science for Kids, just walked up to him, said, hey, you look like you were a paratrooper in the 101st. He had a hat on and, and she said, who are you? And he told her who he was. And she said, would you like to be broadcast on the internet to dozens of countries and thousands of people right now? And he 
was very gracious and said, yes, I'd be fine with that. And so we were able to interview him for a, a pretty good period of time about his experience and learn more about him. And his son Steve was with him, and they were very gracious with their time, despite the fact that they had to get, get on the bus pretty quickly. If you're interested in seeing that video, um, I will have it posted uh, with the podcast description uh, when, when it uploads uh, later on. So you can ju- jump right to that and see that. It's through the Airway Science for Kids uh, website, and you'll be able to see that interview. And he talks not only about D-Day, but he also talks about his uh, reunion with Joyce. So for me, it was a really amazing moment to meet this man and to learn more about him. And everything that I've described to you uh, about his life, I have learned since that day. Norwood Thomas was very generous with his time. He was very humble in what he had been a part of, always focused on the other men around him who had not only fought with him, but also the ones who had, who had died in the service of their country. And he was very appreciative for the opportunity to have had the life that he had and to come back to these places and share it with people uh, because he always believed that people needed to keep learning about what had happened there so that these types of things wouldn't have to happen again. Now, Norwood Thomas has since then passed away. Uh, But he was a life that I thought this week with the anniversary of D-Day, tomorrow as of this recording, uh, and four-year anniversary of my meeting him just a few days away, it was one of, the, one of my favorite memories of that entire trip, and that was a trip full of memories. And you can see all the other broadcasts from that trip at that same site where that link is going to take you. Uh, and you can see all the different things that we were doing there. But he was a major part of that. And he, while he was one life among thousands, it was a pretty remarkable experience and a pretty remarkable set of stories to learn. And as again, as I always talk about on this show, when we get past all of those big types of events and who was where and all that. In the end, Norwood Thomas was just a man, just like all of us are just people. And that's what makes stories like his all the more remarkable. All right. So I hope you enjoyed today's story on this episode of This Show is All About You. I certainly enjoyed sharing it with you. Don't have time to brief you too much on how I'm doing, but we will save that for another day. Short version, I'm doing great. (laughs) So that's all that matters. So I'm very happy to say that, as a matter of fact. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode of This Show is All About You. Be sure to check out my uh, website, wordsbyjdk.com, and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you'd like to know more about me. Uh, I have a lot of thank yous for this show. I'm I'm the only one talking, but uh, there's a lot of other people that make it happen. This Show is All About You is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thank you, Eric, so much. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Be sure to check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode. And all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Bruce Flommer, Ashley Kniebel, Adelina Popescu, Ingrid Johnson, Kathy Shamrell, Dean Cameron, Jay Parker, Stephen Crozier, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks to Das Valdez, Saber, and all the great Twitch followers at their sites. For that great experience four years ago this week of the virtual field trip in Normandy, I'll never forget it. And to you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And to send you off into the rest of your week, let's end, as we always do, with an original haiku. How we live our lives ebbs and flows as the river seeks out the ocean. Chins up, everyone.